As we take our break from the book of Ephesians this morning, we're going to be in the book of Psalms, and Psalm 32 is going to be our text. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 here. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Valley Center Community Church. It is a real joy uh, to be with you here. This is uh, our second Sunday as we've been uh, on vacation as a family, and it was so great uh, last Sunday to sit under uh, Dave's preaching as he is uh, working through the book of Ephesians. And uh, before we get started, and I, I pray that David and Jason won't count this time against my preaching time, but um, just uh, I do want to say, um, as an outsider looking in, you know, we, me and my family, we get a chance to come out here maybe once, uh, maybe twice a year, and we, we so delight in worshiping with you, but um, we just want to let you know, you guys have a really good thing going here. Uh, it is, God is at work in this place, and the, the thing that I would say that you as a church do exceptionally well, you do many things very well. But one thing that I think that you guys do particularly well is you capture and display uh, the term that the scriptures frequently use to describe church, and that's family. This, every time we come here, we feel like we're coming home not only to visit our relatives, but also a church family, and you excel at that. And so, but before we, we jump into God's Word, I'm going to uh, uh, invite you to join me in prayer. I want to pray for you and pray for us uh, as we look at this text. I also want to say to uh, those that went on the Israel trip, uh, uh, what was that, a couple months ago, uh, Jim D'Alessio says hi. And uh, I spoke with him uh, a little bit ago, and he told him I'd, I'd say hi. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, what a joy it is to gather as your people here to uh, sing your praises, to read your word. And Lord, now I, I ask as we give attention to this very precious psalm, Lord, that you would, you would open the eyes of our hearts and you would give us teachable spirits. Father, I pray for the believer, Lord, that you would use this text to encourage their hearts. Father, I pray you'd use this passage to strengthen the faith of the believer. And God, I also pray for those here in our midst who do not know you and who are not saved, Lord, though they might think they are. God, I pray that this morning you would transfer them from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, I pray that you would give those in our midst who don't know you, you would grant them the gift of faith and repentance. That today would indeed be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, I pray for this church body. Lord, would you protect its unity? Lord, would they continue to love one another as you have called them to love one another? Lord, I pray that you would extinguish pride and self-absorption and selfishness in this church body, but Lord, that this would be a church body that continues to exude uh, 
deference and concern for one another, Lord, that they would count others' needs as more significant than their own. And Lord, now I would pray that you please ask, I pray that you please help me, give me clarity of thought, that I might rightly divide your word for the good of your people. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Scott Fullman is a computer scientist and Professor Emeritus at Carnegie Mellon's University Language Technologies Institute and Computer Science Department. He has devoted over 40 years of his life to the study and the development of artificial intelligence. Yet on September 19, 1982, Scott created something that will far outlast his career with artificial intelligence. And you know what it is he created? He created this. <laughs> the smiley emoticon. As the name emoticon implies, Fallman suggested that people use the emoticon to let readers know the emotions behind their message. Here's a picture of him holding this line. How many of you use emoticon or the more advanced kind emojis? Any of you use it? Okay, most of you, yes. A very helpful tool, is it not? Right, for when someone sends you a smile emoji, they're letting you know, at least in some way, some small way that they're happy, right? Or when they send you a frown face, they're letting you know that you're, they're disappointed or that they're sad. Or if they send you this, I think they're dancing with joy. Is that what this means? I'm not so sure. You know, it's one thing to send a smiley face, but it's quite another to actually feel happy, isn't it? In fact, if there's one thing I know all of us want, it's to have joy, right? I mean, I know I do. Do you? Of course. Yet often, we don't. Often, it's easier to be downcast, isn't it? Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's often easier to be downcast than it is to have joy, especially a joy that would transcend our circumstances? This morning, we're going to be studying Psalm 32. And as we study this text, here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider where the psalmist directs us to find joy. What I mean is, whatever it is you're currently looking to for joy, this morning, for the next couple minutes, I'm going to ask you just to set that aside and consider seriously the counsel of this psalm. Because look, all of us in this room, we all are looking for happiness. We all are. And this 
quest can lead us down all sorts of paths. And the question is, which path? Which path leads to true sustaining joy? True sustaining happiness? A joy that can transcend our circumstances. Well, if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32. I'm going to suggest that the text, or the, an, or the question rather, this text answers is, how can a person obtain a happy state? So following in your copy of God's word, as I read Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. Uh, David writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, meaning covered by God. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And now David is going to talk about his own experience. Notice what he writes in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David begins by saying, blessed is the one who knows this forgiveness. And then he says, but let me tell you my experience. I tried to cover my sin. I tried to conceal my sin. And friend, David is saying, it did not go well with me. Until the Lord brought me to the place where I confessed my sin to the Lord. Now here in the next verse is the first imperative of the psalm. David's now going to counsel us. Notice what he says there in verse 6. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And now here in verse 8, God picks up the pen. And this is God's counsel to us. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Okay, God, what is this counsel? Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Uh, how many of you like the window seat on an airplane or a train? Do we have windows? Lots of window seat people here. David Redding recounts a story that a prison warden loved to tell. An older friend of the warden once boarded a train and noticed that the fellow sitting next to him was very, very sad. He was downcast. He could, he could tell something was bothering this young man who was sitting in the window seat. Well, as they got to talking, the young man confessed that he had just been released from a distant penitentiary as a convict. He went on to share that his whole life had cast a terrible shadow over his family. His criminal record had heaped shame upon them. And while serving time, this young man had lost almost all contact with his family. Well, as you can imagine, the young man didn't know what to make of his family's silence. He was hoping against hope that their failure to contact him was due to the fact that they could not afford to write to him. But you know what? He didn't know for sure. It could be, I mean, because all the shame that he brought upon the family name, it could be that they wanted nothing to do with him. So before his time was up, the young man devised a plan to find out how his family felt towards him. And this is what he did. He wrote them a letter explaining that he would be on a train that would pass by their little farm on the outskirts of town. If they could forgive him, they were to hang a white ribbon on the old apple tree near the tracks. But if they couldn't forgive him, they were to leave the tree in its natural state. So if there were no white ribbon when he passed by, he would know how they felt and he'd never bother them again. Well, as the train approached the family's home, the suspense was more than the young man could take. So you know what he did? He exchanged seats with his companion and asked him to sit by the window and report the results to him. Can you imagine? Moments later, the tree was in sight. And the older man's eyes began to fill with tears. He then placed his hand on the young man's knee. And in a hoarse whisper, he said, It's all right. The entire tree is white with ribbons. Notice how David begins this psalm. What does he say? He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. That is, happy is the man, happy is the woman, joy-filled is the person who has been forgiven by the Lord. That is, happy is the man, joyful is the man who's been forgiven by the Lord. And is it any wonder why? Because far greater than a family's forgiveness is the Lord's. Now consider for a moment what David is actually saying. 
Friend, don't miss this. David is saying, it's on the screen now. David is saying that true happiness is not found in the pleasures of sin, but in its forgiveness. Do you see that? True happiness is not found in the pleasures of sin, but in its forgiveness. The message of the world is the exact opposite, is it not? I mean, all around us, we are encouraged to go down the path of self-indulgence, aren't we? Is not the call of the world that happiness is found in the fleeting pleasures of sin? Yet, friend, please hear me. True blessing is not found in what you can get away with. No, true blessing begins with confession and continues with praise to God for his grace and salvation. This is why David calls the reader to go to the Lord in prayer that he may be found in verse 6. Have your eyes fall there once more time. This is the first imperative of the psalm. You see, speaking from experience, David's message to us is simply this, and that is, uncover your sin so God can cover it. This, I want to suggest, is the main idea of this psalm. If you're keeping score there at home, you're using that insert, this is the main idea. Uncover your sin so God can cover it. That is, don't conceal it. Don't excuse it. Don't blame shift. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to keep it hidden. No, the message of this psalm is uncover it. Confess it so God can cover your sin. And I am going to argue, friend, that's where true joy and happiness is to be found. I mean, notice the language David uses in verse 1 and verse 5. He says, when we uncover our sin... God covers it. Yet when we cover it up, when we make excuses, when we conceal it, it remains uncovered, that is, not forgiven by God. Thus David calls us to uncover our sins so God can cover it. In Valley Center Community Church, I want to argue, please hear me, there is no greater reality, no greater reality no greater joy than knowing that our sins have been forgiven by the one true and living God. Amen? Listen to me. This is not pie in the sky. This is not preacher talk. I am as serious as a heart attack. Friend, this is the reality. This is the truth that can transcend all your circumstances and give you joy knowing if your sins are forgiven by God. I love what John Calvin has said. He's so succinct. He writes this. Calvin writes, David here teaches us that the happiness of men consists only in the forgiveness of sins. Why? For nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy. Nor can he be gracious to us in any other way than by pardoning our transgressions. So let's just drill down here for a moment, okay? So, so your life didn't turn out the way you had hoped. Maybe you're in a disappointing marriage. 
maybe you're experiencing some kind of suffering. Maybe things haven't panned out the way you had wanted. But friend, please hear me. If you are forgiven by God in Jesus Christ, do you know what that means? It means for the next gazillion, bazillion years, you will be in the presence with our God and Savior for all eternity. Amen? Sure, so you might have a light momentary affliction now. But through what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, if, if your sins are forgiven in Christ, you have the hope of a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sadness, but eternal happiness with our God. Friend, happiness is not found in sin but in its forgiveness. So this morning what I want to develop is how. How can we come to experience this life-giving joy? In other words, how do we uncover our sin so God can cover it? Well, I believe David shows us. In fact, he wants to show us. I mean, the whole point of him recounting his own story is to say, don't do what I did, but instead do this. And as we look closely at this psalm, there are four important actions we must take in order to fully experience the joy-filled blessing of the Lord's forgiveness. But before we look at this first action, I just want to say an important word, one more word here. Uh, you sinned this week. And so did I. Just talked to my family. <laughs> but some of you have sinned and continue to sin because you're not a Christian. You're not regenerate. You're, you're, you're actually, if we're, if we're using the Bible's categories, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And friend, in love, I need to tell you, there is a coming judgment for your sin. And that judgment for your sin is eternity in hell. You, all of us, you are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account. But friend, please hear me. Your eternal destination does not have to be in hell, paying for your sins. No, please hear me. In Christ, God has made provision for your sin. And as we work our way through this text, I'm going to put all my cards on the table and I'm just going to say, I'm going to be pressing you to own your sin, confess it, and to put your trust in Christ. That today would be the day of salvation for you. Now, others of you are Christians but you still sin. And God calls us to keep short, short accounts so that when we do sin, we confess it, not to receive salvation. We already have that through faith in Jesus, but so that the closeness and fellowship with our God can be restored. So, how can you uncover your sin? Well, the first action is this, notice, and that's to forsake concealment. Look again at verses one through three. David writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered, that is by God. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Deceit refers to deceiving man or God about one's own sin. That is, the man doesn't conceal his sin. Verse 3, notice, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In Edgar Allan Poe's haunting short story, The Telltale Heart, the main character commits murder. And then he hides the victim's body under the floorboards. And confident that no one will find any evidence of the murder, the main character, who's also the narrator of the story, he invites the police to search the very room the body is concealed. The police search the room, suspect nothing, and leave. And the narrator then goes about his life with a pleasant and easy manner about him. However, it isn't long before the narrator begins to feel uncomfortable. And unable to escape the lingering guilt of his deed, he begins to hear... It's the heartbeat of the victim he has buried underneath the floorboards. A cold sweat covers him as the beat It goes on relentlessly. In fact, it refuses to go away. So much so, it keeps increasing in volume. Terrified by the violent beating of the heart, the narrator then breaks down and confesses. He tells the police to tear up the floorboards to then reveal the body. And as this short story so powerfully illustrates Valley Center, the pounding, please hear me, the pounding that drove the narrator mad was not the grave down below, but the pounding within his own chest. In Valley Center Community Church, so it is for all who conceal their sin. Notice the physical torment David is experiencing as a result of concealing his sin. Notice what he says there in verse 3. It says, he wasted away. He groaned all the day long. Verse 4, his strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Can we relate to that? Like the narrator in the telltale heart, David experienced physical torment. And you know what? David is not alone. I have counseled many people who have suffered physical anguish as a result of them trying to hide their sin, to conceal their sin, to keep it from their spouse, to keep it from their kids, to keep it from their church. They're hiding their sin. Ulcers, headache, chronic fatigue, insomnia. Friend, please hear me. These are just a few of the physical effects that hidden sin brings. Now, to be sure, not every disease or affliction is the result of personal sin. The book of Job, Psalm 73, corrects such a mechanical view. But nonetheless, friend, please hear me, there remains a reality that hidden sin 
often produces harmful effects on the body. And this is precisely what David is teaching in this text. So a friend, from his own experience, David is saying to you and me today, he's saying to this, look, he said, look at what concealed sin did to me. Don't follow in my steps. Instead, he's saying, forsake concealment. Bring your sin into the light. Confess it to God. Why? So you can experience the blessed joy of God's forgiveness. However, I want you to notice that David just doesn't cite the physical torment of concealed sin to convince us that we ought to uncover it. No, David also weaves three descriptions of sin into the opening verse. Look there in verse 1. And you know why he does this? He mentions transgression, sin, and iniquity. And you know why he mentions these three different descriptions of sin? He does so so we would be repulsed by its evil nature. Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie has written this. He says, the three terms as a whole specify the full dimensions of human evil and hence the situation from which a person might be delivered through divine forgiveness, thus finding happiness. You know why we often don't think that forgiveness of sin provides true happiness? You know why, and maybe this is you even right now, you're thinking, uh, I can think of a lot of other things that make me happy, Aaron. I, I, don't, I don't see this being, maybe top five. You know, you know why we don't see this? You know why we don't have the same experience as David thinking that this is the path to true happiness? It's because we have a deficient view of sin. We don't see it for how evil it truly is. Friend, please hear me. Your gossip is not a benign action. Your lustful thoughts in viewing pornography are not innocent. You're lying to your parents. You're lying to your spouse. You're stealing of your time from your employer. Your selfish attitude. Friend, these are not insignificance. No. You know what all these deeds and attitudes are? They are rebellion against God. They are the absence of respect for God and his law. Because friend, please hear me. The greatest evil about our sin is not that it harms other people, though it does do that and that's terrible. No, the great evil about our sin is that it's an offense against our holy and righteous God. Is it any wonder that concealing such sins will drive a person mad, make them ill, or both? In fact, is that you? Is your heart... Is it beating right now? Because like David, you have been trying desperately to conceal your sin. Do you feel like you're wasting away? Friend, in love I plead with you. 
bring it into the light and confess your sin. Indeed, do what we see next, and that is to respond to conviction. Look at verse four. David says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand is that? God's. God's hand was heavy upon him. He said, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Reverend uh, Walter Ross was licensed to preach in 1714, but he found the folks around Kilmel, Scotland, rather unruly and barbaric. Get a load of this. One village kept active watch for his approach. And one day, the alarm was sound that he was coming, and you know what the people did? They fled from their homes, got into their boats, and sailed out some distance from the shore. Can you imagine? Maybe some of you do that when you see Dave approaching. <laughs> well, you know how Reverend Ross responded? He was angry. He was angry when he came to this village and he found the homes empty. So you know what he did? He went into a number of the homes, took their cooking utensils, and locked them up in a safe space. Eventually, hunger forced the locals to meet with Ross. But he had to use, please hear me, severe measures to bring that about. Now, true story. But let me ask you, why did Ross remove the cooking utensils? You know why? So they would come to him. You know why God's heavy, why God's hand was heavy on David? You know why God allowed affliction upon him? For the very same reason. So David would return to the Lord he had sinned against. You see, Valley Center Community Church, please hear me. There is a mercy in the misery. Make no mistake. The Lord is the one afflicting David. And praise the Lord. And you know what? And maybe he's doing the same to you as well. Maybe right now you're feeling affliction. The question is, how are you going to respond? Well, this text is calling you to uncover your sin. And how will, look at the next verse, and that's by confessing your sin. Look at verses five and seven. You need to forsake concealment. You need to respond to conviction. And now look here, confess your sin. Look at what David says in verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. This is where we're getting this idea of cover, uncover. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now he encourages us. He says, listen, Valley Center Community Church, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. What's the prayer? The prayer is a prayer of confession. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. This is referring to God's judgment. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You know what happens, friend, when you sin against someone? Let's say you sin against your spouse or a sibling or a teacher or someone at this church. You know what happens when you sin against someone? And instead of owning and admitting your sin, you make an excuse? 
You know what happens when you do that? You prevent them from forgiving you, thus keeping your relationship from being restored. Do you know this? So often we think that when we sin against someone, we think it will make things better if we offer excuses as to why we did it or if we downplay the offense. We think that's, that's going to make things better. Friend, please hear me. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know what are some of the most life-giving words you can speak? What I did was wrong. I should have known better. Would you forgive me? Life. Because then that allows the other person to say, yes, I forgive you and the relationship can be restored. You know what sucks the life out of relationships? Oh, well, I, I, I was just having a hard day. Give me a little bit of a, a, a slack. I, I've had a difficult day at work, a difficult day with the kids. Making excuses, blame shifting, and not owning your sin. That sucks the life out of relationships. Notice what we see here with David. We see him making a humble confession. Indeed, verse 5, I would argue we get a model of what a true confession looks like. And this I want to suggest is how we ought to confess our sins to God and others. Notice, David does three things. First, he acknowledges his sin. That is, he agreed with God that what he had done was sin. Now, some people believe that David is referring to his sin with Bathsheba. That could certainly be the case. However, the text doesn't specify. All we know is that David sinned, and in his confession, he says, God, I, I own it. What I did, it was wrong. He doesn't justify his actions. John Piper provides a really helpful insight here. Speaking of confession, Piper writes this. He says, confession to God is not merely admitting our sin as real, but also rejecting our sin as repulsive. Second, I want you to see that he didn't cover his iniquity. That is, David owned his sin. He took full responsibility for what he had done. And then third, he spoke it. He, he confessed his transgression. He actually spoke to the Lord in prayer. And tell me, what was the Lord's response? What did the Lord do in response? He forgave David. As several commentators have pointed out, the Hebrew word for forgave there in verse 5, it's a common verb, and the idea means to lift or carry away. The idea is that forgiveness is relief from a burden. Think about um, how many of you, when you go get groceries, you want to bring all the groceries in and just make it in one trip. Are you one-trip kind of people? You know what I'm saying? So you get the bags, and, and you're carrying all the bags through the garage, up the stairs, and then finally, oh, you can send them down in the kitchen, right? What a relief, okay? Uh, forgiveness is, is conceptualized in that way with this Hebrew word. It's you have a burden, and now you have relief from that burden. I mean, think of Pilgrim's Progress and Christian as he's leaving the city of destruction to the celestial city. What's he carrying on his back? A burden. It's not until he gets to the wicked gate, right, that then that burden is released. He has forgiveness. 
But I also want you to know that uh, forgiveness is also described as your sin being covered. We saw that in verse 1. Also forgiveness is likened to not being charged with iniquity. That is, God doesn't hold us liable. So notice, the vocabulary of forgiveness, it's this. Forgiveness is relief from a burden, the hiding of a record, and the dismissal of a debt. And the question now naturally arises, okay, how can this be? If our rebellion is lifted, who carries it? If our sin is covered, who erases it? If we're not charged with iniquity, who pays? And Valley Center, the answer lies in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Peter write in 1 Peter 1.22? Referring to Jesus, he carried our sins upon his body on the tree. Jesus is the one who carries our sin burden. What does Paul write in Colossians 2.14? He says that Christ erased the certificate of debt that was against us by nailing to the cross. Jesus covered our sin through his death on the cross. What does the prophet Isaiah say in Isaiah 53.6? Speaking of the Lord, but the Lord made the punishment fall on him, the punishment we deserve. Jesus paid the debt, so we are no longer charged with iniquity. Amen? You see, friend, it's very important to note. Confession, and, and, and I, I, one of the many things I appreciate about your liturgy is that you have space in your worship service for confession of sin, as Jason led us in a couple moments ago. But you need to understand this, friend. Please listen to me. Confession is the condition, not the cause of forgiveness. Did you hear me? Confession is essential, but it does not confer forgiveness. That can only come from the one who was wronged. But this is what makes the Bible the greatest news in our solar system. You know what the one who has been wronged promised our God? You know what he promises? He promises that if we confess our sins to him, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Amen? What good news. He's, he's faithful to forgive us even when we don't deserve it. So here's my question, Valley Center. Why wouldn't you confess your sins? Why would you still want to conceal it? Why would you still want to justify it and not own your sins? And let me ask, for those of you here that don't know the Lord, friend, have you put your trust in Christ for your salvation? You know, when David speaks of the floodwaters here in verse 6, he's referring to God's judgment and the idea is that the one who has experienced God's forgiveness need not fear the flood of God's judgment if you've put your trust in Christ. But if you have not put your trust in Christ, friend, be terrified. But salvation is coming to you today to not put your, your, your confidence, your hope in your own morality, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the story is told of a wagon train that was crossing a prairie and as they came across the hill they saw a prairie fire coming towards them. 
The wind was blowing in their face and here came this prairie fire and they were terrified that they thought within moments they all were going to be engulfed by the flames. Well, the wagon master, he thought quickly. What he decided to do is he went to the back of the caravan and he lit the dry grass behind him on fire so that the wind that was blowing the prairie fire towards them was also now blowing this new fire behind them. Well, after a few moments, the, the caravan then went back and stood in the burnt grass area. But while they were standing there, here came the roaring prairie fire. The heat was coming upon them. And a little girl shouted, like, are you sure we're going to be safe? I'm concerned. Here's the fire coming. And the wagon master said, oh, little girl, yes, we're safe. Because we're standing where the fire has already been. Friend, if Christ has taken the fire of God's judgment, then you're safe to take refuge in him. Finally, friend, this text encourages us to alter your course. In verse 8, as I mentioned, God picks up the pen and counsels us. And we know this is God rather than David because of the promise that his eye will be upon us. David is dead, right? God is eternal. His eye is upon us. And listen to the counsel of the Lord. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Can I, can I ask, and, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not joking, are you a mule? When it comes to obeying God's good and clear directions, do you have to be pulled and prodded to comply? Are you a mule when it comes to attending church? I mean, do you literally have to be dragged to come here? Are you a mule when it comes to reading God's word? Are you a mule when it comes to prayer? Are you a mule when it comes to serving others? What about tithing and giving? Are you a mule when it comes to tithing? Indeed, what I'm asking, Valisar, are you reluctant to stay near and close to the Lord? That is, you're always wanting to go off and do your own thing and live for yourself. You know what th this verse is saying when God picks up the pen? It's reminding us that God is concerned both with covering our sin and shaping our character. God doesn't want reluctant compliance. No, that's what a mule does. Instead, God wants joyful obedience. This is why David says in verse 11, look there, he says, be glad in the Lord. You know what that command is? That command, please hear me, it's the inward heart change that needs to take place in the mule. <laughs> Mules aren't glad about anything but themselves. Is that true of you? 
Mules are stubborn. And this should not be true of the Christian. And, and you know what God is doing there in verse 4? Indeed, in verse 9 and verse 4, God is prodding David, the stubborn mule, to get him to confess his sin. He's saying, come, Dave. Here we go. Come, David. No, David. Come with me. Stay close to me, David. Stay close to me. And David's, no. No, I'm going to conceal my sin. I'm going to hide my sin. And God's like, no, David, come. Stay near me. Is your Christianity mule-like? If it is, Valley Center, confess that to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. I think part of the reason why we can be mule-like is we failed to see the joy that we have in forgiveness of sins. And my prayer for you, as I've been praying for you this week, is you would take the counsel of this psalm and look to the Lord's forgiveness for your ultimate source of sustaining, sustaining joy. Let's, let's not be like a meal. Let's have joyful compliance as we follow him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your kindness to us and for this word. And God, I confess that many times I have been a mule towards you. I have been reluctant to stay near you, Lord, wanting to go my own way. Lord, I thank you that you are gracious to forgive. And I thank you, Lord, for Valley Center Community Church. Lord, would they continue to find their joy in you and in the forgiveness of their sins. And may you continue to use this church for the expansion of your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray.